Well, over the past few weeks, I have been reading the original fairy tales to my daughters. And if you've ever read the original fairy tales, you know that they're terrible. They're scary. I think they're meant to scare kids. And so I guess it's not surprising then that my, my daughter's favorite fairy tale so far is The Emperor's New Clothes. Do you guys remember that one? If you've never read The Emperor's New Clothes, which I actually had to read to Doug at the dinner table a couple weeks ago, because my daughters insisted he hear this story. It's about uh, a vain emperor who loved to dress up and show off for his subjects how fancy he could look. Well, one day he met two men who told him that they were able to make him an outfit entirely of this magical, expensive, exquisite fabric that was only visible if you were wise. Well, of course, the emperor had to have this exquisite new outfit, and so he went ahead and paid the men to get to work and make his outfit. And the day came for him to put on his new clothes, and he was horrified because he couldn't see them. He must be a fool. Well, instead of admit himself to be a fool, he went along with it, and the men helped him undress, and then he put on his new clothes, or so he thought, and they told him, you know what, sir? This fabric is so delicate, so expensive, it's light as air. It's almost like you, you're not going to feel like you're wearing anything. It's that nice. Well, the emperor went right along with it, got himself dressed, or so he thought, and then he continued to lead the regal parade straight through town at the front of the line, waving to all his subjects, only to realize about halfway through that his subjects also apparently were not wise because no one could see his invisible outfit. He was totally ashamed. And my little one just busted up laughing. This is just the best story she's ever heard. Now, it's not a real story, thankfully. It's just a fairy tale. But what if this actually isn't as far-fetched as we might think? What if there's actually some truth to this little tale? Because God's word actually says something very, very similar. To put it really simply, you should never put off and not put on. If we don't put off the old self, we are not able to put on the new. And we know that as Christians, we are supposed to put off the old, the old attitudes and mindsets and behaviors, those things that oppose Christ. We've got to put them off like an old pair of dirty clothes. We want to get rid of them, but we can't just leave it there. We have to also put on new spiritual clothes. We have to clothe ourselves in what Christ says we need to put on. What does that mean? What does it look like to put on the new man, to put on new spiritual clothes? Well, Paul is going to help us understand exactly what that means step by step in our passage today. If you haven't turned there, we're going to be in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, and I'd like to read it together. Colossians 3, 12 to 17 says this. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against each other, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right away we see Paul give this command to put on. It's time for those who are in Christ to put on new spiritual clothes and represent him well. But before he jumps in, before he says anything about what those things are that we are supposed to put on, he reminds the Colossians who they are with just a few quick words. Look at verse 12. He says, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It's like Paul was just kind of taking a step back for a minute and he's asking them, do you remember what Christ did for you? Remember how he loves you? Remember how he chose you, how he forgave you? That's who you are in Christ. He wanted them to remember that because everything that he was about to say was going to have to flow from a motivation of gratitude for Christ having done that. Look at verse 12 again. He says, put on then. Now that your position in Christ is firmly fixed in your mind, you've got to choose to live an entirely different way. Put on a new way of thinking, a new man, a new life. And every single thing that Paul was going to say had been perfectly accomplished and modeled in Christ. These are Christ's characteristics. These are the things that who are, make him who he is and that we are to emulate. This list was never meant to be a checklist of don't do that, do this. It was always meant to point our eyes to Christ who did these things perfectly. He is both the model and the motivation for the new man. We can't miss that. Paul wanted the Colossians to remember that the gospel really should affect every single part of their life. They should want to be entirely new because of what Christ has done for them. It should be evident in their life. And the same is true for us. It's a tall order, but the spiritual clothes that we are to put on are not invisible. In fact, they should be clearly seen by anyone who looks at us. They should be evident. The way that we live our life, the way that we interact with others, Really, our relationships should be a model to the world watching us of what Christ looks like, what he loves like. Let's write it this way for our first point. We need to make sure that we love others the way Christ loves us. Love others the way Christ loves you. Look again at verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Do you notice that every single one of these things is relational? They're all relational. This is how we deal with other people, how we show love to other people. And this is tough because we all know that there are relationships in our lives that are just difficult, that are hard for us, that just irritate us. And it's in those moments when we are frustrated or when we're having a difficulty in one of our relationships, that's when we're most tempted to let the old man creep back in and respond the wrong way. And Paul knew that. That's why he wanted to remind the Colossians of who they were in Christ, remind them of the gospel, because he knew that that would be the temptation. The way that Christ has shown us love really has to be the motivation for how we love others. It has to be. And he goes on to say that real Christians should have compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. That means that if you follow Christ, 
You should be a person who is moved deeply in your inmost being with compassion for others. That means that you can look at somebody else's situation and feel a tender mercy for someone, pity almost. It's as if Paul's saying, I want you to be able to empathize with others well, to feel for others, and not just feel something, but that this tender mercy and, and pity drives you to action, drives you to do something for the benefit of another. Jesus was the ultimate example of a compassionate heart. He was the ultimate. His ministry was not an easy one. We know that. He spent time traveling and teaching, and he was always surrounded by people who wanted something from him. And not that they wanted something from him, as in like they wanted to hear him speak. They wanted to hear the truth that he was saying. They wanted to see a miracle. They wanted to get something from him. In my mind, when I think about Jesus' ministry, I picture him being surrounded by crowds of needy people. And I'm sure it had to be exhausting. And yet I love how Matthew records what he saw because he was a witness to this. Matthew 9, 35 and 36 says this. Matthew wrote, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. The Gospels are full of examples of Christ's compassion. And it's interesting to note when you read through the Gospels, most of the miracles that we see Jesus do, he does out of a heart of tender mercy and pity and compassion. We see in Matthew 15, 32, that Jesus fed 4,000 people from a little boy's lunch. Why? because he didn't want them to faint with hunger on their way home. He had compassion for them. That's the kind of tender-hearted mercy that we are supposed to emulate. We need to be compassionate, like Christ is compassionate. We need to make sure that we're putting ourselves in the shoes of others and looking for ways to actually practically meet their needs, to do something for the benefit of another. Romans 12, 9 and 10 says it this way, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what's good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. How do you do that? He goes on a couple verses later to say, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, and we can't miss this. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. We are able to empathize with others, to show tenderness when we actively choose to love them and do what is good for the sake of another person. Not just saying something or patting someone on the back, but actually doing something for their good. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Well, back in our passage, Paul goes on in verse 12, not only to say that real Christians should have compassionate hearts, but they also need to be marked by kindness. Kindness is used interchangeably in scripture with the words goodness and gentleness. Just literally, it means that a kind person is a person who does what is good, that benefits others because of their virtuous character. So a compassionate-hearted person is called kind. They do good to others. And it makes sense that Paul goes straight into the next thing on his list, which is humility, because really, a humility, a mindset of humility is absolutely necessary for us if we're going to be kind-hearted, compassionate people. Humility is 
a lowliness of mind, a modesty. And again, there is no greater example of humility than Christ himself. Listen to Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you have this mind, uh, sorry, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Every Christian needs to put on a humble mind. And Jesus' example is the ultimate. Being in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the point of a horrible, gruesome death for our sake. His example leaves us no room to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. He's the ultimate example of humility. We have to be like him. And that is easier said than done because we all know, again, there are those relationships that really push our buttons that are difficult. What do you do when you're trying to love others the way that Christ has loved you when you're dealing with someone who just causes you angst, who has actually wronged you and offended you? What then? What do you do? Let's look again back at Paul's list and see what he says next. We must put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and look at these next two words, meekness and patience. Meekness is a great word. It's actually a word that Jesus used to describe himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Uh, it means uh, to have a gentle mind. One, uh, one commentator I read explained it this way. Meekness is not weakness, but power under control. The meek person is able to submit, trust, and yield everything to the control of God, not fretting or pushing his own agenda. Practically, that means that when somebody hurts you and somebody wrongs you and you're struggling to love them, you have got to give it to God and let him work it out. Jesus, again, the perfect example of what it means to be meek. 1 Peter 2, 23 says this, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. You can do the same thing in your difficult relationships. You can be like Jesus. Don't bite back. Entrust yourself to God. Because ultimately, God will settle all the accounts in the end. He is the one who's going to take care of it. And you can trust yourself your frustrations, your relationships to the justice of God. It's not our job to change someone or to force them to repent or to get revenge or to make them do whatever we think they need to do. That's God's job. Scripture makes it clear that he is the one who will enact justice in the end. Revenge is not ours, it's his. He will deal with it. So we need to fully entrust ourselves to him, knowing that nothing slips by his notice and he will deal with it all. We can trust him to take care of it in the end. Our job is simply to forgive. Meekness and patience really go hand in hand. 
Meekness is the attitude that chooses to trust self to God, knowing that he's got it, he will work things out in the end. And patience is how you control yourself in the middle of those difficult circumstances. The definition of patience is one of my very favorites. I want to read it to you. Biblical patience is the internal and external control in the midst of a difficult circumstance that results in being slow to act, slow to avenge injuries, and enduring difficulty. And Paul goes on to show us exactly what a patient person does to the nth degree in our next verse. Let's read verse 13 together. Verse 13 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. If you are a Christian, you have no excuse not to forgive. You have to be patient with the failings of others because Christ has been patient with you. He's forgiven you. It's really not even about the other person. It's about Christ. You choose to forgive others, not because you are feeling especially benevolent, but you choose to forgive others, not because of them, but because of Christ. If Christ can forgive you, then out of a deep love and gratitude for that forgiveness that you know you didn't earn or deserve, you should want to forgive others just to show Christ how grateful you are for your own forgiveness. It's all about him. It has to be. It's the love for Christ that compels you to forgive others. And that love for Christ is what spills over onto others and helps you love others as well. But ultimately, it comes back to that. Love is the hinge pin that holds this whole thing together. Look at verse 14. Above all these, all these things that he has just said that we've gone through, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. One commentator said, love is like the giant overcoat that you put on after you put on all the other pieces of clothing, and that's when you finally feel warm. It all comes together. That's love. Every single thing you do should be covered, encompassed in love. That's what it's all about. Love for Christ and love for others. Gospel-centered love is what makes everything work. Those who are saved by Christ, they can't be the same. They have to look new. They've got to look different. They are a new man entirely, and they're marked by love. And it shows itself plainly in the way that they live. It should be true of us as well. People should look at us and say, I know that they're different. Something's different. They're new because of the way they love others, the way they're quick to forgive. It doesn't make sense. Jesus said this plainly in John 13, 35 to his own disciples. He told them, the world will know that you follow me just because of the way you guys love each other. It's not gonna make sense to the world, but it should be different. Your life should be marked by a love for others because of you deeply love Christ. And ultimately we know that that love for Christ stems from a deep gratitude for what he has done for us in saving us. If Christ has made peace with God on our account, then surely we can be at peace with other people. Look at verse 15. The wording here is interesting. He says, this is Christ's peace. Is it the peace of Christ. That means it belongs to him. Christ is the one who has made peace with God on our account. And that transaction, the fact that we are new in Christ, that we've been forgiven, that reality should rule in our hearts. 
That word rule is a great word. It literally means dominate. Completely dominate, control, govern. The understanding of what Christ has done and how he has made peace with God for us, that should absolutely rule and dominate our hearts. Your heart is the center of who you are, the seat of your affections, if you will. It's your mind, it's your will, it's the deepest part of you. So really, this gospel-centered love, this love for Christ and what he has done for you, taking you out of darkness and putting you into light, taking you from being the old man who was dead in sin and making you now alive in him, a new person, that reality that you are no longer your own, you belong to Christ, that should absolutely dominate your mind, your will, your emotions, your heart. Everything about you should be absolutely governed by the reality that you are Christ's. And we've got to make sure that that mindset doesn't fade. Whether we've been a Christian for 50 years or 50 minutes, a deep gratitude for the salvation and love of Christ has to dominate us. So how do we not ever let that fade? How can we keep that mindset strong? Paul, again, tells us exactly how. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Real Christians aren't just thankful for their salvation and then move on, but they want more of Christ. Just like what Paul said. What he's talking about is the words of Christ, the things that, that Christ said should be precious to you. You should love them. You should want to obey them. And we have an even greater advantage than the Colossians because we have his words in writing, bound up nice and pretty, sitting on our laps. We cannot ever take for granted the fact that we can read Christ's words anytime. We can't take it for granted. And I love that Paul says that the words of Christ, his words, scripture, should dwell in us, dwell. It means to, to live, to take up residence, to move in and expand, if you will. That's what God's word should do in us, in our hearts. That's not gonna happen passively. This is not going to be easy. We collectively need to take Paul's words literally and let Christ's word live in us, move in and grow. If you know me, uh, you know that I love decorating. I do, I love picture frames and pillows. Some say it's a problem, I don't know. I love it. Well, this week, um, I'm moving, actually. So my home is a, a little bit of a chaosy mess of boxes and just stuff everywhere. And I can tell you, all I want in this world is to not see another box. I want them gone. I want pictures on my walls. I want the furniture to make sense. I want every little nook and cranny of my house to be filled with our stuff and for it to be neat and tidy and done. <laughs> that may not happen for a while. But imagine with me that if I have you come to my house in a couple months, and I open the door and there's just this wall of boxes. And I say, oh, come on in, just squeeze this way. And I lead you through a labyrinth of boxes into my kitchen and have you sit on the tile floor because there's nowhere to sit, there's no furniture. You would probably wonder like, what have you been doing? Like, what if I told you, you know, moving, it's the worst, I hate it. Uh, it's too hard to think about where I'm gonna put everything, you know, because it's different, it's different size and space than our last place. It's just kind of, it's hard to think. And you know, it's a lot of work. But you know what, the boxes are in, they're in my house, it's good enough, right? It's all here, it's just, you know, it's just in boxes. 
you would probably tell me like, yeah, you should probably work a little harder to figure this out, you know? Well, that's kind of the picture that Paul is giving us of what we're to do with Christ's words, the words that he says. Don't put your Bible on the shelf and let it sit there for a week until you come back to the next church event. Don't tell yourself that it's too hard, that it takes too much time. Be serious about doing the hard work of unpacking the truth of God's word. You've got to see your mind like an empty house and see God's word like a box full of treasure. And your job is to rip that thing open and pull stuff out and fill your house with it, fill your mind with God's word. It's never, ever, ever going to be enough. Keep filling up your mind with Christ's word. You've got to let it live in you. That's going to change the way you think. It's going to change your mindset and your emotions. It's so important. And we have to do this. Why? Is it because Paul's giving us a list? Don't do this. Do this. Read your Bible. Check, check, check. No, it's not a checklist. Paul knows that if you're going to put on Christ the things that he wants you to put on, this new man, you are not going to be successful in doing that apart from Christ's words. You need Christ's words to guide you, to lead the way. You need that. Look at verse 16 again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you see that little relational bit again? This is how you interact with people still. God's word is the basis for how you are supposed to interact with other people. God's word is the thing that is supposed to direct the words that actually come out of your mouth, how you speak to other people. You are to use God's word to encourage others, to build others up. Let's write it this way for our second point. Build each other up with God's word. Build each other up with God's word. How do we build each other up with God's word? Well, Paul says, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, teaching and admonishing, these are terms for how we use our words, our mouth, to point people to the truth of Christ's words. You're using your words to get people to understand his words, if that makes any sense. Your words are to point other people to Christ's words, which is why you need to know it. Sometimes that looks like teaching. It means you're explaining God's word to someone so that they get it, so that they can obey it and do it and please Christ. And sometimes that looks like admonishing, which is a warning, like, hey, this is bad for you. Christ says that this is bad. Here's why. Let me show you in the word. Either way, teaching and admonishing, you're using your words to point people to the word of Christ that dwells in you. And as Christians, we need to be doing this. We need to be using our words to point others to Christ, to his word. But we cannot miss a very important qualifier. Look at the end of verse 16. We need to be teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom. Wisdom. The literal practical sense of this word is, um, it's an everyday practical prudence. This wisdom word, this is not the same wisdom that talks about enlightenment or knowledge. That's not this word. This word is that you know how to use the things you know in a wise way. Meaning, we need to be very careful when it comes to teaching and admonishing others that what we are saying is God's words, not our own. 
very, very important. We live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with self-promotion. And sadly, it's in the church too. We've got to really check ourselves that when we teach or admonish others, that we don't do it because we think we have so much to offer or that we kind of like being in that teaching role or to have a one-up on somebody. This cannot be done for our own ego, but this is supposed to be for the benefit of another person. Anytime you open your mouth and you speak God's word, it has to be for the benefit of the other person so that they can understand and obey and serve and honor Christ the way you do, because that's your desire, that's your goal, for them to live and love like Christ. We can't forget that the very first thing, before Paul says that we're to be teaching and admonishing each other, the very first thing Paul says is, you need to make sure that you have a compassionate heart. Compassionate heart. How you teach and admonish others, it matters. God showed you great mercy and pity when he saved you. It was his kindness that led you to repentance. That's how he dealt with you. And that reality should really take root in your heart. We don't teach or admonish others because we think we have a one-up or we're so wise. Teaching, admonishing should always come with a deep sense of humility and honestly, a bit of trepidation. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. We've got to be very careful how we use God's word, how we speak it, and make sure that we are speaking accurately Christ's words. That's important. That's why it's so important that we let Christ's words live inside of us and grow, that we are committed to studying and learning and knowing his word, and that we never, ever stop. Because really, we cannot teach or admonish anyone apart from his word. We have to know it. And again, we might be more influenced by our culture than maybe we realize in this department. We live in a day and age where anyone at any time can post their thoughts on any subject and just see how many people will like it. And because of that, there are a lot of self-made Bible teachers. You can, you can hop on YouTube or Google or whatever, Facebook, whatever, and see all kinds of thoughts, people sharing their wisdom with the world. So how do you know what to trust? Where do you go? If you want to learn God's word and you want to grow, and there's so many options out there, people saying, here's the truth, how do you know what to trust? Well, Paul makes that really, really clear for us as well. The whole book of 1 Timothy is kind of the instruction manual for the church. He lines out who it is that's responsible for teaching God's word and how. And Paul tells us clearly, the ones who are responsible for teaching God's word are the pastors of the local body. That's their job, to lead and govern and, and shepherd their sheep. And so it's really the pastoral leadership that teaches, but what does that mean for us then? If we're supposed to teach and admonish, and that's part of our job as well, but we all should be careful about it. Well, what does that look like for us then? What does that mean? Well, I think it'd be helpful for us to turn to a different passage. Um, let's look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 and see what it looks like for us to teach and admonish well under the leadership of the church. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's the example. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Under the leadership of the church, we are to build each other up. How? By speaking the truth, which we know what the truth is. They're the words of Christ. They're his words. That's what the truth is. We are to speak that, build each other up in that, his words, in love, until we all attain maturity. That's the goal. Our hearts should be that we want everyone to be mature in Christ because we want Christ to get the glory. It's all about him. We want Christ to be honored by as many people as possible. That's the goal. There is zero room for ego in this equation, none. So make sure that you are a serious student of God's word, that you are unpacking scripture in your mind, that you are devoted to knowing it and learning it because that's what we need to use to build each other up. Don't Google something or hop on YouTube or just take somebody's word for it. God has given us pastors that are a gift to us. Ask their advice. Learn from credible sources that they approve, that they want you to learn from so that you can make sure that you're not wasting time, that you're learning good, solid truth, and that you can use it in turn to edify your sisters and build up the body like Christ is requiring us to do. Teaching and admonishing is not just knowing facts. That's not what this is about. Yes, you do have to know the facts, and yes, you do have to study God's word, but teaching and admonishing is not spewing out facts or showing how much you know. It requires, wisdom requires, that in every relationship you have, every conversation where you're talking to someone and they're telling you about their life or their struggles or whatever it is, that you are equipped a workman who knows how to use God's word, pull out just the right tool at the right moment for the right conversation and help the other person understand and see Christ. That's the point. You've got to help them. When somebody is wrestling or struggling or needs to be reminded to get back on track, it's your job to use God's words and to do it with God's attitude. That's what a teaching and admonishing relationship looks like. You never want someone to look at you and be like, okay, well, you just quoted to me a bunch of verses to show off how many Bible verses you know, but what does that mean? I could read it myself. That's the point. They need a teacher. Your job is to help them understand what the scripture says and pull them along so that they can honor Christ. That's, that's the teaching role. That's what you're to do with your sisters. Don't be a robot. Don't sit down with someone and start rattling off all the things you know or all the verses you have memorized Robots don't have compassionate hearts. You can have a compassionate heart. Be like Christ. Put on his attitudes and use his words to help other people obey him. That's the point. We can't let ourselves get puffed up. We can't secretly enjoy the teaching role or like that we know more than somebody else or, or want to show off with the things we know more and more as you see his character. And that love for God is what's going to spill over onto others. 
The more you love Christ, the more you're going to love his people. It's better to be a new believer with three verses memorized than to ever use Christ's words to show off how much you know. It's your job to build others up in love. You are to teach and admonish in wisdom. And then Paul keeps going in verse 16 by saying, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Both the word of God and the corporate worship of God is essential for believers. One commentary said that this corporate worship also has a teaching role in our lives. We are, as part of the body, like we just talked about, underneath the leadership of our local church, we're to come together to learn God's word, to speak it to each other, to worship together. We have to make sure we're doing that. Because really, as we're working to put on the new man, it's all about Christ. It really is. He's modeled it perfectly. These are his attributes that he's done perfectly, by the way. So it doesn't make sense when we brag about how well we think we're doing when he's done them perfectly. Our job is just to emulate him and love others well. Look at verse 16 again. It's why it ends simply, be thankful. Everything you do should be motivated by a deep gratitude for Christ for what he's done for you. Let's write it this way. I just want to write one more point down as we wrap up our time together. Let's make sure that we work to advance Christ's reputation. Work to advance Christ's reputation. I have a friend who um, lives overseas. I don't actually know what he does, but he works for the United States government. And his wife, who is not employed by the government, had to undergo months of training uh, classes on etiquette, how to host dinner parties, how to dress, how to talk, how to walk. And all I could picture was uh, Princess Diaries, you know, princess lessons. But for real, this is what she had to do. She had to undergo months of training and even dealing with difficult people. If somebody were to come in and push her buttons, what would she say? And da 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 da. All this stuff. And eventually, after months of training, they got sent off with the you know, stamp of approval from the US to go and be a representative for them. Uh, and I just keep thinking, what, what a stressful situation. It's her job to sum it all up that when other dignitaries from other countries come and have dinner in her house, there to walk out her door thinking highly, more highly, of the United States government simply because of the interaction they just had with her. That's incredible. And a privilege, right? She gets to represent the United States, and foreign dignitaries have a higher estimation of our country as a result. If you are in Christ, you have that same job. You do. You are a representative. You are a delegate. And it's your job not to put yourself forward, but to put Christ forward so that everyone who comes in contact with you sees him and he garners more respect because of the way you behave. Let's, um, let's look at verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever we do, wherever we go, just our everyday normal life, the things you do, the things you say, they all should be done in Jesus' name. I heard one pastor say, this doesn't mean that you grab your purse and you head out the front door and say, I'm going shopping in Jesus' name. That's not the, the idea here. To do something in the name of another is that you are putting that person forward, that you represent him. And that everything you do and say and all your interactions with other people, that they would look at you and have more respect for him because of how you live. 
That's what a representative does. That's what we are called to do. That's why you have to put on the new man actively. You've got to choose it. You've got to want to be like Christ. It can't be about us. It can't be about elevating ourselves, even when we're tempted and we want to be important. It has to be about Christ. We've got to choose every day to live, to love like him, with his word guiding the way the whole time. Even in our relationships, interpersonally, how we live and interact with others, it's all governed by his attitudes and his words. It's all about him. Your job in a very real way is to adorn Christ. You're putting him on and parading through town for everyone to see. That's your job, to put on Christ, put on the new man, because this world, this lost and dying world, desperately needs to catch a glimpse of who he is. And it's our job to garner some respect for him in the way that we live and talk and act. I guess it comes down to two choices. You can put yourself forward. You can boast in the things you think you know. You can trust yourself. You can just go just you. And ultimately, like the foolish emperor, you'll end up ashamed because you're not dressed in Christ. Or you can put on Christ. And so that everywhere you go, all the things you do, all the things you say, people see him. And he is the one that gets the glory because that's what he deserves. I pray that we would be women who are serious about putting on the new, not so that we can elevate ourselves or know more or think more highly of ourselves, but so that we can point others to Christ, King Jesus, the one who needs to get the respect that is due him. That's what I pray we become. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for salvation. Thank you that when we were sinners, absolutely dead in our sin with nothing to offer you that you pursued us and you saved us, God, that it's your kindness that led us to repent. Lord, I, I pray that we would love you deeply, that we would think often of the fact that you saved us, Lord, and that you didn't just save us, that you even made it possible for us to become like you. What a privilege that you showed us how to live and you're asking us to put your characteristics on, to put you on, to live like you. I pray that we would um, take it seriously, God, that we would see ourselves as representatives for your name, that we would see the privilege, that we would see the calling, and that we would never, ever tire of running hard after you. I pray that your word would actually govern our thoughts, that it would dominate our affections and our emotions and our will, Lord, and that everything we do and say, even though we fail and we often will, but that the desire of our hearts would be to make you look good, to garner more respect for your name, Lord. We know that you deserve all the credit and all the glory and our hearts and our flesh struggle with that because deep down we want to be important. We want to be the teachers, the wise, Lord. But really, it's you that are so good that you've redeemed our lives and made it possible to live a life that honors you, God. So I pray that's exactly what we do. I pray that you would give us a humble heart, a compassionate heart, that you would um, grow us in kindness for others and that ultimately we want to see everybody obey you, to know your word and do it, Lord so that you get the glory that is yours, that you deserve. We are grateful for you. We love you. And we pray that our lives would be um, just an act of worship to you. We thank you, King Jesus, and it's your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed to your groups.